road trip, journey to Jerusalem. It was a big week in the Christian faith as we said goodbye to a legend, to an apostle of sorts, to an evangelist definitely, to a man of God who lived 99 years on this earth. This week I also received in the mail a, a, a thank you card from a woman about my age who has been in my church, she's uh, served on and off for the first time way back in Salina when we moved to that community and she was just writing me to thank me for the part I played in her life in turning her on to being a follower of Christ. Nice of her to help me with the sermon illustration, I appreciated that. And as I read her card that she was responding to out of a, a Bible study group that she was in today, these many years later, I was moved to remember the change in her life that I witnessed and have witnessed all these years. Being in a sense of having a special relationship not only with her but with her family as I have married all four of her children and the various churches I've come from, they've all called to come back and be the pastor at their wedding ceremony. We also had dinner this past evening with two of the three couples that Sally and I have been in ministry with for most of our 40 years. Bishop Scott Jones and his wife, Mary Lou, and also Keith Boone, pastor of University Park Methodist Church in Dallas, and his wife, Diane. Dennis, who is already retired, and his wife, Linda, live in Austin, could not make it up for this trip. We planned to get together to celebrate their 70th birthday year uh, this September in Houston area, down on the coast somewhere. We're trying to get all the calendars to match. Would not surprise you to know that we talked about the Methodist Church, especially when the girls went on round three of talking about everybody's grandchildren. Theirs are newer than ours, so they, we had to give them most of the time, which we, we, we did, knowing that ours were superior to theirs in every way anyway. And they were telling us how superior theirs were, too. So that's the way it works, right? We took turns literally round robin talking about the grandchildren. Well, today, I'm going to speak about what Jesus wanted to teach the disciples on that two-and-a-half-year road trip to Jerusalem. Or more specifically, what he wanted them to learn. Now, that's a big topic. Obviously, there were so many things that Jesus would teach them along the way and so much time day after day and night after night when he had to speak into their lives. He's going to speak about healing and forgiving, about having humility, about being a servant. He's going to speak about m money and the treasures of earth. He's going to speak about prayer. He was going to call them individually and choose them to be his apostles. They were going to be the first disciples, but they were not going to be the last. And so as I struggled with this all week long, it didn't really come to me until as the afternoon was wearing thin last night, exactly how to talk about what it means and what he wanted to teach them. And it came to me the simple words that he used to call those first disciples over and over again when he would say to them, follow me, follow me. 
A follower of Jesus Christ is a learner or a disciple. They all go together to mean the same thing. And when I started asking myself, how do you preach about following Jesus in one sermon? And it was not until this morning as I awoke and as I woke that I had been thinking a lot about through the night about what it means to have the passion to follow Christ. Now, you know me as a pretty calm, older gentleman who came on some occasions to be your pastor, who I've been here now almost five years. You have no idea how hot was the fire that burned when I was 35 years old and in Salina, Texas. You have no idea how I felt unless you remember back to when perhaps you were a young adult at the peak uh, or the start of a period of your life after you spent so much time learning and studying about the Christian faith. I was turned loose on the world and it was hard for me to get enough, 60 and 70 hours a week. Finally, it was my wife who came to me after we moved a year and a half from that first pastorate in Denison where I'd been the associate pastor. And about a month and a half or two after we had been in Salina, as I recall it, she'll provide the details if you want to know and tell you exactly the day it was. But she came in to me one time and, and said simply, don't ever do that to me again. I couldn't imagine what she could be talking about. What could I have possibly done to her? We just moved to a, a new church, and I didn't, wasn't aware that I messed up so quickly, and I had to say, what are you talking about? And she said, for the last year and a half, you have been gone night and day, night and day, night and day. Don't ever do that to me again. And I thought to myself, self, don't ever do that again. <laughs> so the 70-hour days had to be spaced out somewhat. It just couldn't do that night and day, though my passion was to do it because I was convinced that many people in United Methodist churches were not experiencing enough passion in their life. They were very comfortable pew seaters. They were good people. They were followers of Jesus occasionally, but very few of them were sold out to give their heart and mind and soul and strength to the Lord Jesus Christ. Very few of them loved the Lord more than they loved their families or their job or their retirements. That's what I was convinced of. And when you're young and convinced in something, you know you're smarter than everybody else, right? So if you're out there sitting there today and you're 35 years old, this is as smart as you'll ever be, 35. <laughs> I get it. As I thought about my life in recent years, I began to realize that I had somewhat begun to soften up. Sometimes I don't do the things I used to do now. Because even though I think my fire still burns as bright and as deep as it ever did, it just can't burn as long at one time as it used to could. It has to be replenished. But the reality is I stand before you today and I'm a pastor in a denomination that has lost members for 50 plus years in a row. And I had to say to somebody the other night, my greatest heartache in being in ministry is that I didn't start screaming louder when I was younger. And now... I'm the age I am. We got turned aside in the United Methodist Church, I'm afraid. Actually, I'm not afraid, I'm sure. And I was sure a long time ago, but I didn't have the position in the United Methodist Church 
or the desire to share the wealth of my knowledge with those so much smarter than me, or so they presumed. So I let my candle burn dimmer than I should have when I was younger. And what I feared, and what John Wesley feared in the mid-1700s, was coming to pass before my eyes, that the church had lost its passion for spreading scriptural holiness across this land. That the church that I was a part of had somehow given the idea to people that the easiest thing to do was to become a Methodist. In fact, people used to tell me that all the time. Man, it's so easy to be a, a member with your church. Now, what they meant is, that means I can join without a big fanfare. I don't have to stand up and tell everybody about every hard story in my life before I can join. In fact, I can join and still go to a party at the country club and even drink a beer without being persecuted. And that's what they meant by it's easy to become a Methodist, right? You have people tell you that, right? You can believe almost anything and be a Methodist, which I always took exception to because it's not true. Is it true that a lot of Methodists believe almost anything? Yes, but it's never been true that true Methodists, followers of John Wesley, believe just any old theological premise they wanted to. It's never been true with him. It was never something he wrote and never something he intended for the people who followed after him and the way he followed the Lord Jesus Christ. I found myself at the beginning of some people's walk intentionally telling people how easy it was to become a follower of Christ, as easy as falling off a log, I used to say. And they would look at me and go, what? I said, it is. The Holy Spirit's wooing you to do it, encouraging you to make the choice. It's so simple. Just accept Christ and he's your Savior. Now, I didn't tell them about the part about once he becomes your Savior, the next step the almost immediate stuff is he wants to also be your Lord. Because you see, being having Christ as your Lord is a lot different than having Christ as your Savior. They were never meant to be pardoned by 70 years of experience from the time you accept it until the time you die. They were meant to be brought together early. And what we do is we accept Christ as our Savior because who wants to go to hell? I don't meet too many people that just say, you know, I like to go to hell. Burning forever sounds good to me. I don't meet anybody that feels that way. Do you? No, nobody says that. In fact, I've noticed in my 66 years, and soon 67, that almost every funeral I go to is a funeral for a Christian. I believe that probably half of the people in these United States are in for a huge shock when they die. Maybe more. Broad is the path, but few are the ones who walk through that narrow gate. I'm old enough now, I don't have to apologize anymore when I say that. You might say, well, I don't really like the tone of this sermon. That's okay if you stay here long, and you're going to be here a while this morning. You know, <laughs> your only escape is to go out one of those doors in the back or the front, and it's really noticeable if you come this way. So I suggest just kind of slink out the back. Because this morning, I intend to finish the topic. Now, I'm not going to stay two hours. I'm not going to stay an hour, I don't think. But I do intend to finish. Because I have nothing more important to say ever than what I say today. What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? How does one do that? And what does it mean? 
You see, I believe that that two and a half years with those 12 was meant to ingrain in the leaven that he knew would still be there an understanding of that that would be perfected when the Holy Spirit came to dwell within them and not until. But every instance of remembrance that they would recall and write down that, they would, that later we would call Scripture would come together for them in such a way that they would understand what it was going to mean to follow Jesus Christ. Now, there would be a lot of misunderstanding along the way, a lot of confusion about exactly what that meant. They might not always get it on the first go-round, but they would eventually get it. What does it mean? How do I do it? First of all, it means exactly what I've already said, and I'll read it to you again from the book, lest you think I've forgotten what it means. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We read in the scriptures these words. For even if there are so-called gods with a small g, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. The earliest confession of the earliest followers of Jesus the clear statement of their faith was to say, Jesus is Lord. Not to say that Jesus is Savior, but to say Jesus is Lord. Now, some people get it backwards. I don't want you to get it backwards. Some people believe that in the process of salvation, the logical statement of the way things happen is, is that we have to become perfect somehow in order to become Christian. And that's backwards. What we have to do is to open our hearts to believe and to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior so that then we may become perfect, as perfect as people can be. Not perfect in the sense of Webster, but perfect in the biblical sense. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said, Be ye perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect in heaven. He wasn't joking. He wasn't kidding. It is the task of every person to be perfect in the biblical sense of the word. Now, when he said that, and we take that as a statement of faith, we recognize that in all these things he was teaching, they were each moving them in that direction. These disciples, these earliest people that Jesus called, called them by name to come and follow them, and then picked them out among this number of followers that were following him to be the 12 apostles. And yet, along the way, even that was difficult, because in the Gospel of Luke, verses 59 and 61, two different persons who Jesus called to follow him gave excuses. Can you imagine that? That Jesus would call somebody to do something and they would not be able to go. I think I can look that up just because it's such an entertaining scripture for us. One we all love to read because it sounds so sweet like the sweet little Jesus we all love to worship. Right? Luke, now you said, Doug, you're starting to sound a little tacky. Okay. I'm okay with tacky this morning, little. 9.51. Here it is right here. No, that's not it. Let me go back to my notes and find it that way. Find it 9.51 and 61. Oh, no wonder I didn't go far enough down. 
When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead. And the story goes on and on and on. And he begins to ask them, will you follow me? And one says, I got to go bury my father. Now, that, in that day, that was a slang word for meaning something else. It means I don't have time for it. I'm not going to do it right now. Two different disciples gave some flimsy cultural excuse for not following Jesus. To us, it sounds like Jesus was being unduly harsh, but really these were just excuses. The only reason they didn't want to follow him. If you remember in John 6, toward the end of that chapter, many people were following Jesus until the teachings got too tough. They started getting hard, even talking about communion and what his, what's to happen to his body at later times. And the disciples started leaving. They were just wandering all. They said, you know, who can take this? This is too much. Like some are going to say about my sermon today, it's too much. I get it. They were doing it too. They were wandering off. And you know what the 12 said? Peter said to Jesus, Jesus asked them, are you going to leave too? Do you intend to leave? And Peter looked at them, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, they were tempted to leave because a lot of the crowd was leaving. And we live in a country right now where a lot of the crowd is leaving the church. A lot of your nephews and nieces are thinking about the church and they're saying, well, it's not that big a deal. I believe in Christ, but the church is not that important. You know, religion is not that important. Just forget the fact that the scriptures don't know anything about solitary Christianity. It's always meant to be a life-living community. It's clear in the scriptures. But people today get excited about it, and they want to separate it and make it well. Well, I'm just not going to be able to go to church. You know, because you know how those churches are. They're so judgmental. They'll be telling me to do without things. Deny myself. You know, yes. And you say, well, what's this deal about denying? You know how much denial there is? Isn't that a river somewhere? Uh, somewhere. America's not really built on the principle of denying ourselves, is it? Actually, it is. If you go back far enough. Many people deny themselves, including life itself, in order for us to have this nation. They braved oceans in flimsy ships that we wouldn't ride across like Texoma, and they went across the ocean searching for a land they didn't even know if it was there how courageous was that many men and many women have given their lives to build this nation or wouldn't be here today how courageous is that and that's why we're so offended by some of the recent newscasts about police officers who were on the scene when the shots were going off in that school in Florida I hope somebody comes back and says that wasn't true. Because if you're like me, when I heard that, that there were police officers outside hearing the shots, crouching behind vehicles in a defensive position, I had a strange feeling come over my body and an anger that welled up inside of me when I remembered the picture of that little 14-year-old boy wearing the cadet uniform who gave his life so that others could get out the door. If we have armed forces, policemen, who are watching a catastrophe go down and they don't run into the fray, then they're not like the firemen in New York City, are they? 
If they're not ready to give their life for, to save someone else's, they're in the wrong business, aren't they? We all feel that way about that generally. The same is true about Christians. Christians since the earliest of days and in the earliest centuries have been willing to give their lives to take care of the sick and the affirmed when oftentimes they were going to get sick and die themselves. We call them martyrs. They would go in and take care of the sick when nobody else would, even catching the disease themselves. But they so loved their neighbor as themselves that they could not stop from going to them in their time of need. Deny yourselves, take up your cross, and follow me. And what happens along the way is a thing that's disturbing. Now, I've already preached the sermon to the, in a sense, to the children, but I'll just refresh your memory about it. There are many gods in our world, not big gods. Nobody goes around saying, my job is my God. Yet, there are many gods in the world that we recognize. Many things who take the role of being our Lord in life that are not the Lord Jesus Christ. Things like politics, things like human sexuality and all its trappings. Things like work and vocation and achievement. Sometimes even patriotism becomes bigger than Christ. No, they're not the same thing. Sometimes the love of the dollar and recognition becomes our Lord. Sometimes sports become our Lord. Sometimes in this country, personal pleasures take foremost place in our lives. And we constantly find ourselves choosing what we want to do first and uppermost in our lives. Sometimes even appearance in this world has gotten to the point where young women will starve themselves literally so that they can be 5 feet 8 and 93 pounds. They look great on TV. In real life, they look like scarecrows, right? But we call out and tell our young women that that is what beauty is. There are so many gods in our world and so easy to make a god out of it. I, I think I've said it here once before, but it bears repeating. I believe it was Jack Gray who was preaching that revival sermon in our little country church. They told parents in a congregation one night that, you know, you can make an idol out of your wife or your children. I remember almost falling out of my chair. I thought, sure, they'd run him out of town with a stick. But nobody moved. He was a pretty imposing figure. Jack was a big, tall guy with a voice that was bigger than Texas. And I remember his young boy sitting there going, love your children so much that it was wrong? Put them in the place that only the Lord should have in your life, and you've done just that. I want to be very gentle in saying that because I know the temptations for our culture and our land today is to put our children as our idol and as our God. We would never say it and we would never say it's true, but it's when we allow anything to take the places in our life that only God should take, then we have made that thing an idol. It can be our husband. 
I've often worried about Sally idolizing me that way. <laughs> but it happens. It happens. I know people who don't go to church because their spouse won't go. That's an idol. I know parents who will do anything for their children and give them anything, whether it's good for them or not, even when it gets in the way of the place that only God should have. I know a lot of grandparents. It's a good thing they only have their grandchildren a day or two here or there, right? Because it is so much blessed fun to spoil a grandchild. And there's nothing wrong with spoiling your grandchildren a little. There is something wrong, however, with letting them grow up to believe that they are the most important thing in your life. You notice I took a risk. My grandchildren didn't know what I was going to say today. But neither one of them looked too terribly shocked when I said I love Christ more than I loved even them. And Christ had to become first before them. My daughters knew it. My wife knew it. I knew it about myself. But we have to rehearse it often or we forget it. Because the temptation is to think that our job is the most important thing in our life. To think that that next promotion is essential for our family's well-being. Even if it's going to get in the place between us and God. If you're a youth, it's easy to think that your success on a test is so important that cheating is okay. To make that an idol. It's easy to make that desire to be popular cause you to do things you would know that Christ would never have you do. It's easy to be tempted to put things first in your life other than the Lord. I'm the first one to say it. My greatest strength is my passion. My greatest temptation is my passion. Because I'm passionate about many things. There's been a time in my life I had to set my golf clubs aside and put them in the corner of the garage and leave them alone for six weeks to prove I could to myself when I was a young man. Because I was passionate about golf. I'm passionate about the Dallas Cowboys. And early on in my ministry, they were really good. And you know what made it terrible when I was living in Hector, Texas? Hector, Mulberry, and Ravenna is about 6 o'clock on Sunday evening. We had a Sunday night worship for about 15. And I would sit in front of that TV watching the end of the Cowboys games back there in those late 70s when they were so good. And I would be thinking, come on, get the game over with. i got to go to church. And undoubtedly, they would go just past when I had to get up and go to church. It was hard. What a great sacrifice to make. That was before we had recordings. We couldn't play it back. You know, if you missed it, you missed it. I was passionate about it. But I did get up and go to church. You see, you just can't allow your passions to pull you away from the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. And the only way we learn about that lordship is by taking, if you will, a road trip with Christ through the scriptures over our lives. We'll learn many different things along the way, but we will always be coming back to these same two things that we have to do. We have to deny ourselves. We have to take up the cross that was meant for us and follow him. By doing so, we will learn as we exercise how to do it 
by denying ourselves and putting ourselves first, how to make Jesus Lord in our lives. Now, when you get to thinking about these things, David Watson wrote this in explaining the making Christ Lord about our life, and I quote him. He says, we don't call these other idols in our lives, these other little gods with a little g, gods, but we give them dominion over ourselves. We allow them to occupy space in our lives where that only God should be. Anything that we allow in God's space is wrong, including the love of your country. That was a hard one for me. I was a Texan. I am a Texan. I bleed red, white, and blue. I love all the war movies and all the conquests. I love the victories. But somewhere along the way, probably about midlife, I began to realize, you know, as much as I love these United States, it doesn't come first in my life. Whenever my country is wrong, I say it's wrong. Especially when it gets in the place of the God I worship and believe in. They are not synonymous. I choose Christ first, period. I choose love of my family second, and I choose love of my country third. I'm pretty clear about that. And if one gets in the way of the first two, I'm not going to be a very good American. And I'm okay with that. So when my nation does something I think is not Christian, Sometimes I speak out about it, and I can see people squirm. They're like, that's a political opinion. I try to be sure that it never is. It's an opinion about faith. The government doesn't get to take the place of faith in my life. That's what freedom of religion is all about. And so it should be in our lives with everything. Because I've asked myself, oh, many, many years what does that mean? I mean, when you listen to those words, they almost make your blood run cold, don't they? I mean, Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whatsoever, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Human interests in our lives cannot surpass the interests we have in the things of God as taught by Jesus. His thoughts need to have first place in our life. His perspective on living should be our perspective. Anything less than that is a place for us to grow in. Any retreat from that is a place where we are choosing ourselves instead of Christ. And you said, Preacher, how many times are you going to say this? Oh, I don't know. I'm tempted to kind of ask you, okay, when you've got it, just kind of raise your hand and leave it raised until everybody's hand is raised. Because, you see, it's going to get questioned tonight and tomorrow in your life. You may go home and evaluate your wife and go, oh, my goodness, you know what we've done? Because we do allow ourselves to scoot over gradually, right? 
When I came back from Asbury, I started mixing with all those Perkins graduates. Is the bishop here today? I don't think he is. I don't think he is. And all those Perkins graduates, they learned to study the Bible a lot different way than I did at Asbury. And in time, you know, they were good friends, and I loved them, and I still do. But as I told one of them very recently, you know, good friends and all, you're wrong. And he said, look at you. I could tell it in his eyes. I said, that's right. I'm saying it out loud. You're wrong. That bishop that wrote that article was wrong, and that's not Christian. What she wrote was not Christian, and I don't believe a word of it. And you shouldn't either. He didn't say a word. He probably knew I was trying to pick a fight. And I probably was. But I'm convinced that the church, any church, including the Methodist church that Billy Graham was bragging about years ago, can be all that it needs to be and all that God wants us to be, perfect, if you will, in every sense. Only when we're willing to put the scriptures and their explanation of the God we worship first. Only when we are willing to evaluate our desires in terms of what Christ desires for me. I mean, I can turn down your desires for me, and Sally can tell you I can turn down her desires for me when, when I want to. I can turn down even the grandchildren's desires sometimes when they want me to do something, but that's really hard. But what about turning down the good things for the best things in life? That's hard. But that's what Christ calls us to. That's the kind of perfection he calls us to. Not a perfection of action, but a perfection of intention. Perfection of desire. We desire to deny ourselves and follow him. Then it's not such a denial. That's the magic about being a Christian. People think, well, if I become a Christian, I'm going to become a bore. I think that's exactly backwards. When you become a Christian and Christ returns your life to you because you've trusted him, then you can live it fully without guilt or shame or worry because you're doing all for Christ for Christ's sake. Everything becomes oriented around Jesus. The joy in your life will flood your heart and your soul. It will take over all your worries and concerns about what you're missing, and you will find what you were really seeking. That's what happens to people when they free themselves up to give them all themselves to God. Is it scary? Yes. Let's be honest. Denying yourself is a scary thought. Trusting yourself completely in God's hand is scary. What if God wanted me to go to Cambodia and share the gospel where they almost killed me? You can do it. What if he calls you to attend Sunday school? You know how bad Sunday school is in some people's mind? If they come to the south from the west and the east and we tell them we have Sunday school for adults, they go, for adults? That's for children. And we say, no, down in the south, adults go too, at least some of us. And they say, why? And we say, because you don't know enough about Jesus. That's why. And they go, but I've been confirmed. And you say, yeah, 40 years ago. And you followed Christ about three steps, and now you barely can see him in the distance. If you don't study and keep denying yourself in order to get more of Jesus, you end up with less of Jesus. And you end up with less of what you can become. 
And the things you so desire are so fleeting and falling away because you got your desires focused on the wrong thing. This church is in a similar position. People are getting kind of hung up about where we're going. I'm not hung up about where we're going or how many of us go. I just want some of you to go. Goodness gracious, Lord turned around the world with 11. And his first choice after the 11 wasn't so good. We don't even know what he did. I mean, the disciples picked him, not Jesus, by the way, just for clarity. They could get carried away. We hear about him getting chosen, and then we don't hear anything else about him. But those 11, they changed the world. 11! 11 of you. I'm tempted to make you stand up in groups of 11. Because you could be changing the world. If Christ is first. I don't know what time it is. You notice I haven't looked at my watch, don't you? And you probably have. That's all right. Sometimes watches can be idols too. Every now and then somebody will say, don't worry about it, just preach till you're through, preacher. And I think there's a lot of churches, if I did that, I'd have been through really quickly. <laughs> we get down to the end of the question, and it really is what Jesus wanted to teach them and what he wants to teach us. The way you learn to follow him is by losing your life and allowing Jesus to save it. He'll return your life to you in a better shape than you gave it to him. Here's this startling thing he says in the Gospel of John about this topic. And it's a scary thing. And I am done. Yeah, I am done. Pretty soon Brian will be calling another offering if I don't let you out of here. John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus said, I call my sheep by name. They hear my voice, and they follow me. So for all those people out there who are proclaiming to be Christians and yet not following Jesus, I'm worried about them. Because I want everybody to go to heaven and live eternally with the Lord. There's just no halfway thing in this game with Jesus. It's all or nothing. Now he gives us time to get to the all. And in fact, he gives you your whole life. Because I'm 67 years old and there are things in my life. No, I'm not quite 67. Let me change that. I soon will be in a few months. But there are things still that I'm having to give up. And they're little idle corners of my life that keep popping their head up. And every time I intensely give something up, I just feel so good. I don't feel good until I do it. Thinking about doing it doesn't make me feel good. It just makes me feel guilty, especially when I don't want to do it yet. You ever had one of those? Something in your life you don't want to give up? But you know the Lord is telling you to give it up. It's a lot easier just to deny yourself. And do what the kids do in youth when they play Trust Village. Or at least we used to do it when kids were younger and I was doing youth ministry. There's a whole exercise of 
two or three hours where we'd go through exercise after exercise. And one of them, it's where you pretended you were a tree. You just hold out your arms, and you've got some skinny youth standing behind you. And if you're a big guy, that really concerned you. And then you just relax, and you fall into their arms. I was always concerned about that. Somebody could get hurt, and I could get sued and lose my job. But you know what? The youth never dropped another youth, not even the big guys. They always caught them. If I can depend upon them to catch each other, can't we depend upon Christ to catch us? You say, where are you going to end this sermon, preacher? Well, I'm going to end it right here. Just in case you were wondering, in Matthew, the 28th chapter, after having spent two and a half years teaching them how to do it and teaching them what he was calling them to do, there was one thing left for them to hear, one thing left for them to learn. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Not enough just to understand it. Then you got to go and tell somebody else about it. And when we do those three things, when we know how to do it, and we're willing to do it, and we act on it and start telling people, the church will experience that revival again that Cindy was talking about it, just like it did in days of old. It's not that people don't want to hear. We're just too reluctant to tell. We're just too reluctant to tell. We're convinced we can't tell someone that we don't really know. They might get upset. So what? Give them the chance to be mad. You care enough about them to tell them about Jesus in a sweet, polite way. If they get mad about that, smile, bless them, and go on your way to the next one. Because half of the world around you doesn't have a clue. Follow me. Lord God, you're intimidating. You scare us to death because you ask us to give our all. We can only give our all, Lord, when your spirit descends upon us and we receive your spirit, your spirit and the fullness of your presence. Only when we are made to come alive and made whole in the life of Christ, will we be bold enough to, with loving eyes and graceful attempts, tell everybody we meet about our Savior. Lord, let us be such a people. Let us take this journey to Jerusalem and let us evaluate ourselves to see where we are and are allowing your lordship in our life. We're here for you, Lord, because we know you were here for us first. Bless us now. If there's someone who needs to come to you today, let them come. If there's someone, Lord, who needs to find a church home, let them come. If there's someone here, Lord, who just needs to come to your chancel space, a space reserved for you to talk to them, let them come as we stand and sing this song together.
worshiping you as our Savior and as our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.